So I've been saying for the last uh, several weeks that in Revelations, you read Revelation, you have to understand that God, uh, that John is painting a, a verbal picture for his readers uh, about creation's eternal commencement. Right, just telling us kind of how this is all going to end, how it's all going to come about, and, re- and really for us, how our real life is going to begin. And that is good. It's great, in fact. It's a fantastic story. It's a great picture. Uh, it's a beautiful ending. The problem is that John is painting like Picasso and not Michelangelo. And that has led to a, a ton of confusion because... 2,000 years after John wrote this letter, we're still trying to understand what it is that he's saying. We're trying to put it together. We're trying to figure out what, what was he saying? How are we supposed to understand it? How are we supposed to apply it? And I think the unintended result of John's revelation is that many people today, as they read Revelation, they see what they want to see, not necessarily what John saw. And and so I, I, I was sharing uh, with somebody the other day that um, preaching this series through Revelation and 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 studying it to be able to to share it with you all, um, you, you know, the, the, the Bible says not many of you should presume to be teachers or instructors because you know that those who teach will be held to a higher standard. And so, um, as I, uh, get up here to talk to you, I'm like, I, like, God is going, okay, Corey, <laughs> you, you better get this right. Um, and, and so I, I want to share with you, uh, truth. I want to share it in, in a, a relevant way so that you understand it can apply it, um, to your life. But I realize that what I've been sharing in this series in Revelation and what you're going to hear today is, is, but probably not something that you have heard before. And, and I want to just warn you that just because you haven't heard it doesn't make it wrong. Um, it, it's just different. And I, I think what has happened over the years is that there's been so much confusion. There's been so m- many people focusing or looking on so many different things in Revelation that we go into reading Revelation uh, expecting to not understand it, we're expecting it not to make sense, and we're expecting it to be a little scary or, or intimidating. And so as we go into read Revelation, if that's your expectation, because you're like, well, you know, th- what this guy said, it was this way, and that guy says, well, like, nobody says the same thing, I don't know what to do. We go into it thinking that, then, then we're going to see what we want to see or what we expect to see, and not necessarily what John saw. And, and so let me give you a little public service uh, announcement right now. Um, if you are watching or you are listening to, to someone on, um, like it's, it's, this is a world wide web now, this is the world we live in. And so if you're listening or watching somebody on YouTube, uh, in a podcast, on TV, whatever, however you're getting information about the world, if you're listening to someone who is constantly scanning the headlines and making predictions uh, about John's revelation based on what's happening in the news or or um so, so let me tell you I have a, a a friend who in 2020 you know you remember the pandemic that we had 2020 minor thing uh so we have this pandemic in 2020 and I don't know if you remember this but that year 2020 we had 3 3 blood moons. Now, that was nearly unheard of. In fact, had there not been a pandemic, you might not have heard of the blood moons at all. Um, but because there was a blood, the, the, because there was a pandemic,
Okay. See, it's going to all be fine. It's not the end. Okay. Not the end. Um, so in, in 2020, we have the, the pandemic and then the three blood moons. And, and so what I got is, um, Hey, did you hear, uh, we're having three blood moons this year that hasn't happened in like 16,000 years. I think Jesus is coming back. And I'm like, I, then this, so here's what I say ever. Cause people all the time are like, did you hear? I listen to this guy. What I get is this. I was, li- I listened to this podcast and it's really good. And this guy really knows what he's talking about. Oh, and he's a Christian. And so uh, apparently that means that everything that that person says mu- must be true. Cause he's a Christian. He wouldn't lie to me. Um, and, and so l- let me tell you what I've discovered. Revelation is big business. It's a lot of money, a lot of power tied up in revelation. And so if you're a pastor and you're looking out at the headlines of the day and you're making predictions about Jesus coming back based on these things that you're seeing in the world and you're the only one who's got it figured out, people have to come to you to get that information. This is exactly the issue and the problem with the priests in Jesus' day. They pretended like the gospel was for them And then they doled it out to people that they thought should know it. And so Revelation has become this big machine where if I can keep you scared about what might be happening or might what be going on in the, in the world and oh my goodness, did you know what Russia is doing in this country and the blood moons, the pandemic and it all ties into John's revelation and I can show you how it goes to, I, there was a book uh, years ago, 99 reasons while Jesus is coming back in 1999. Now, if that happened, we missed it, Uh, which means it didn't happen. Um, But the guy who wrote that book said that the scorpions in the desert in Revelation, what John was actually talking about, 100%, what John was actually talking about were Apache attack helicopters in the Gulf War. Let me tell you, nonsense. Nonsense. John... Like, if you would have walked to John and go, hey, John, guess what? Uh, in a few years, people are going to fly. You'd have been as crazy as they thought John was. Like, they had no understanding for that. All right. <laughs> I'm getting off here. i got to get back on track. Uh, if you're watching or listening to somebody who's constantly making predictions about the world and things that are happening and about revelation and trying to tie them together and you got to come to me because I got the information and I'm going to give it to you so you know, so you don't miss it. Stop listening to that nonsense and don't send them any money. Okay. Revelation is hard to understand in some degree because of the way John wrote it. But it was not hard for the first century readers who read what John was saying to understand. Why would John write a book that the people he was supposed to encourage in the midst of their struggle and their persecution, why would he write a book that they couldn't understand? That's dumb. John wrote Revelation so that the people of his day who were being killed for their faith might be encouraged and might have hope for the future. And for that to happen, they had to understand what John was talking about so that they could get that encouragement and that hope. So yes, it's hard to understand because of the way he wrote it, but it was not hard for them to understand. And so the question is, why did John write this way? Why did John write Revelation the way he wrote it? If if he understood, if God knew that we were going to have a hard time understanding it and, and, and realizing what he was saying, why did he write it that way? Well, I'm going to give you two reasons. The first one is that it's not that unusual. The way John wrote was exactly or was very similar to the way that almost every Old Testament prophet wrote. And so the Jewish people would have understood the way that John was writing because the very beginning in the week one of this series, we talked about how John starts out. The revelation of John. That word revelation, if you remember in Hebrew, is 
the apocalypse of John. And it wasn't the apocalypse the way we said it, the end of the world, oh my goodness. Apocalypse means revelation. And so we start at the very, um, the very beginning. This is not unusual writing. As soon as this Hebrews and Greek readers would have read this, they would have gone, oh, okay, John is talking in the vein of the Old Testament prophets. And so we need to read it in that, in that way, the way we read the Old Testament prophets. The other thing um, is that even Jesus spoke in parables. Jesus spoke in parables in the New Testament. Why? So that those people who wanted to know, who wanted to understand what Jesus would say, and they would dig in. They would figure out what, what lied beneath the surface of what Jesus was saying. And those people who didn't really care to understand it would just move on. So um, this shouldn't surprise us. Shouldn't be, we, should, we should just go, oh, this is the way that it is. Um, Jesus spoke in parables. And I guess I didn't get to number um, two yet, Julie. Uh, John wrote this uh, revelation this way for this reason. He was trying to hide the message of revelation from the Romans, Roman people, okay? So it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus spoke like this when he told his parables, but also because, remember, if John would have just come out and said, um, look, uh, Caesar is the one I'm writing about. And Caesar doesn't follow God. He's a God unto himself. He thinks he's sovereign in the world. It means he's, he thinks he's a God and he can do whatever he wants to. And um, everybody believes that. They worship him. They pray to him, all of this stuff. And so Caesar is going to be overthrown because God is the only king and God, uh, God's the only one that, that, um, that he'll tolerate. Like God has to be number one. And so Caesar's going to be overthrown. If John would have written that way, then every copy of Revelation would have been hunted down. Every person associated with that book or who got caught with a letter of Revelation would have been killed on the spot. And Caesar would have sent word to Patmos where John was to have him murdered. We would not be reading Revelation today if John had not written it in the way he, he wrote it. John wrote Revelation the way he did so that if a Roman picked up the letter of Revelation and began to read it, he would go, these are the ramblings of a delusional crazy person. And if you crazy Christian want to read it, go ahead. But you guys, you, you guys are whack. Like this is not, this doesn't make any sense to me. And so John wrote Revelation right under the eyes and the nose of his Roman people so that they wouldn't understand it, but every Christian would understand it, that they would have encouragement and hope from reading it. So what we're going to look at uh, today continues that hope in the book that John talked about, but it has also caused a lot of hysteria. Um, so, uh, so let's pray before we jump into the rest of it, okay? God, thanks again for this day and the opportunity to worship you. And thank you for uh, this letter from John to the churches, and not just the churches in Asia, too, but, but to every church, to this church um, today, to us here. I, I thank you that John wrote it in the way that he wrote it because it preserved the book, the letter, for us. And so, God, I just ask for wisdom as I, as I share what I've learned um, about the chapters we're going to look at today, I ask for open hearts and open minds for all of us uh, that we might understand and we might be able to apply the things that we're learning because that's what you wanted. You wanted your people to find encouragement and hope so that they could stand up under persecution. And, and God, we don't face persecution like the first century followers or other uh, people in other countries even today, but we know that we are pressured about our faith and sometimes when we go to work, the people around us aren't Christian, or maybe they claim to be Christian, but they don't really act like it. And so we tend to hide our faith a little bit more. And so God help us to, to gain um, strength from revelation, uh, to, to, to be willing to tell people about your son, Jesus. Um, and so help us to do that, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So in chapter 12, um, what happens? John uh, has been the last few chapters. Last week we looked at the, the sevens that he was talking about. Uh, the seven seals of the scroll that Jesus opened, and then the seven trumpets that came out of those seven seals. And, and in 12 to 14, John kind of pauses from the series of sevens. We're going to get back to series of sevens in a couple weeks. Um, but he pauses, and, and John begins to reveal what is written in the scroll of the Lamb. So God had a scroll in his hands, sealed with seven seals. Jesus was the only one who could open it, the lamb that was slain. And he opens the seven seals. And now John is like reading the, the scroll. It's open before him and he's able to share uh, what it said. And so we discover in these chapters that uh, the persecution that the church was going through in that day, in the first century, was actually the result of a great spiritual and cosmic battle that was raging. Um, so that what John tells us is that what is happening here on earth is directly tied to what is happening in in heaven. That's the first thing that we're going to learn as we look at uh, chapter 12. And so he mentions specifically how the physical events of Jesus' birth and uh, his life and then his death in our physical world were tied directly to battles that were raging in the spiritual realm. And so when you read chapter 12, it talks about there's a, there's a woman in the sky and she's about to give birth and there's a dragon trying to steal the baby away and, and she's protected and blah, blah, blah. And then, and then the, um, and then the dragon is cast down to earth. That's how John is talking. But what he's saying is it's a spiritual battle and there's an earthly battle and they're tied together. Um, and, and so, uh, this is the most important bit of information that we're going to look at in in chapter 12. John says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Remember, Christ is the, is the um, Hebrew word for king um, or Greek word for king. Uh, they have come. Okay. Salvation, power, the kingdom, the authority of the king have, have come. That sounds important, doesn't it? The, the king is now on his throne. That's what he's saying. There's a new sheriff in town. That's what John, if we were writing Revelation today, that might be what we would say. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. So we have a victor and we have somebody who's been defeated. Now, the accuser accuses them day and night. Who's them? The brothers, the Christian brothers, people of faith, uh, accuses them before our God. That's what he's been doing. Uh, and they, again, they, brothers, have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Remember, persecution is happening here. They're being killed for their faith. And so we learn two important things about the spiritual battle that are um, taking place uh, in the world and in the spiritual realm uh, at that time. And the first thing we learn is that Jesus won. That's the most important thing. If you read chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 12, you come away with Jesus won. He's the king. He has the power, the authority. He has the throne. He's on the throne. And he has won the victor, uh, victory over the accuser, over Satan. And he has cast them down. By the way, um, the word Satan, or maybe it's pronounced Satan, um, it means accuser. And so Jesus has won. Satan has lost. That's the, that's the big, um, Point. The second thing we learn is that Jesus' people conquer Satan, the accuser, just like Jesus did. They do that through the blood of the lamb. Okay, because Jesus was killed, he paid the price for our sin. So we stand in that blood because our sin is forgiven. And it says the word of our testimony. What's the word of our testimony? If you go back to our gospel statement, you would say it this way. Jesus, the king, died in our place and rose as our defender, inviting us into a relationship with the Father where we can live our real lives. That, that's the testimony that we have. Jesus won. And he didn't just win for him, he won for me. And I can stand in his power and his authority and his throne. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And so Jesus... Jesus um, is, is me. I get to be in him. He's my king, and so he protects me and watches over me. So Satan, depicted in Revelation, 
in John's revelation, not depicted as a serpent as he is in Genesis, but as a dragon. So when you see dragon in Revelation, um, he's talking about Satan. And uh, it makes sense. Dragon is kind of scarier, right? Uh, more ominous um, than just a, a snake. And John was writing in this kind of ominous uh, way. And so Satan is kicked out of heaven by Jesus. Satan has to make his home on earth. And so what's happening is Jesus, uh, Satan no longer has the ability to go between heaven and earth back and forth all the time like he was before. Satan has been limited to uh, the earth and he is not happy about that. And because he lost the battle with Jesus, he's taking it out on Jesus' people. Look at verse 17. Then the dragon, Satan, became furious with the woman, who is a picture of, of Mary. Um, and, but in that, it's not just Mary. It's like all people. Uh, and he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That's you and I, people who believe and, and who recognize Jesus as our king. Uh, because it's those who keep the commandments of God. That's what we're supposed to do. And the test, hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the shore of the sea. And so this is how John tells us that the spiritual battle that had physical implications now shifts to become a physical battle that has spiritual implications. And so chapter 13 of Revelation is all about the physical battle that is heating up on earth. So when you read chapter 12, it's a spiritual battle. It's things happening in the spiritual realm. And then John shifts in chapter 13 to talk about the physical battle that's uh, happening. And this is where a lot of the hysteria and confusion come from. So let's get into it. Chapter 13, verse 1. John says, I saw a beast rising uh, out of the sea. And where was the dragon standing? On the shore. So it makes sense. And this beast had ten horns and seven heads. That doesn't line up, right? You're going to have one um, head with three horns and one with one horn. and what, It doesn't make sense. Ten and seven, they don't, they don't match. And then there were ten diadems on the horns and, and the blasphemous names on their heads. So um, the sea in the, in the Bible, Old Testament prophetic writing, but really in the Jewish mindset, the sea always represented the unknown. It represented danger and, and terror. Anytime the Bible talks about the sea, it talks about it in like this fearful kind of place. It's, it's unknown. We're, we're scared. We don't, like people go out in the sea and they don't come back. And so we don't know what happens to them. This is where the idea that the world was flat comes from. Because people get out on the water and they don't come back. Well, maybe they just fell off the edge. Uh, we know that's not true. But people didn't know what to think, right? Because these things were happening and they couldn't process it. So it's danger, it's terror. It makes sense that out of this place of chaos, the sea, this beast would come. And so this beast has ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadem. So here's, let's break that down. Um, horns in the Bible represent kings or kingdoms. Whenever a prophet is writing about a king or kingdom, they're represented as, uh, as horns. Um, so this beast represents ten kings or ten kingdoms who each claimed sovereignty apart from God. Diadems or crowns in prophetic writing mean sovereignty. So there's a king who says, I am God, I get to do what I want, and the God or any God can't tell me what to do. So that's what John is saying. There's a beast and it represents 10 kingdoms and it's 10 kingdoms functioning outside of a knowledge or understanding of, of God. Um, then he talks about the seven heads. And for John... The number seven means complete or whole. So these kingdoms, these kings and kingdoms, um, represent the kings and kingdoms who set themselves up in opposition to God, who reign apart from God, without God, um, or in, in, in opposition to God. Does that make sense? Good. I'm going to go on anyway. Uh, so, um, remember that the accuser and his followers lost. Oh, wait. Um, yeah, that's where I'm at. The accuser and his followers, uh, they, they lost. They've been kicked out of heaven. And so they're in opposition to anything that is good. So um, take a beat and look around the world today. 
what do we as people of faith see um, in the world? It seems that everything that God calls for from a person of faith is looked at as um, silly or uh, that, that like you can't do that. Nobody can do this. So, uh, let me give you some um, really simple examples. Uh, God calls for um, things like sacrifice and trustworthiness or honesty. Those things in the world today are not always held in the highest esteem. God calls for sexual purity in our lives. That, that means um, you, you have sexual relations with one person in your life and that person is your spouse. And so there's no sex before marriage, no sex uh, outside of your spouse after marriage. That's a sacred thing that's supposed to be held in honor. But the world goes, uh, you're crazy. There's no way. In fact, in fact, the world will tell you men were not created that way. I thought God created us and then gave us a manual for how we're supposed to live. And that's what he says. So that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, so what we see in the world today is a lot of what the accuser is doing, taking everything good and turning it into something bad. So that the, th- the way that a Christian is supposed to live is looked at as crazy by the world. Why would you do that? There's no sense in that. Um, just like the dragon... This beast is going to wage war against the people uh, of earth. Um, and if you, uh, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to tell you this, but um, this is, this is uh, Kevin's fault. Uh, I, I was lifting the TV up on the stage this morning and kind of put my back out. And so Kevin um, brought me some some things. All natural, right, Kev? Homeopathic pills. Uh, and I took them. <laughs> Kevin told me the first dose was free. The next one was going to cost me. Uh, anyway, they must be kicking in. I think they're I think they're kicking in. Uh, so. So now you know, if I seem a little off this morning, uh, that's why, I'm 51, that's why. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so just like the dragon, the beast is going to wage war against people of faith in an attempt to conquer them. Jesus has already won, so we're going to try and kill as many of Jesus' people as we, uh, as we can. Now, this first beast that comes out of the sea represents military might or uh, power, the idea that might makes right. And you get that when you, when you read through what it says about the beast. The beast um, conquers and controls, and you have to do what I say because I'm the biggest uh, and the strongest. Now, these kingdoms, these ten kingdoms, use the power of their military might to conquer and then to make the rules, not for justice, not for peace, but for injustice and oppression, those are the things that are going to be celebrated. It's a good old boy um, mentality. But then 13 tells us about uh, another beast. John says, I saw another beast, not coming out of the sea this time, but out of the earth. And this beast had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Now notice the second beast seems familiar. The second beast looks a lot like Jesus. What did John see when he turned? He saw a lamb that looked like it had been slain. So here, John says, this beast appears to be a lamb, but not a lamb that has been conquered, a lamb that is victorious. Why would you want to worship a slain lamb? That's ridiculous. Worship the lamb who has power and authority, kingdoms, uh, and gets to do what he wants. And so this beast represents the political or governmental machine and propaganda. Again, you read, you can get that which as you read through that. Um, so this second beast, it looked like Jesus, but it sounded like Satan. 
And as you read the story in 13, you find that the beast is able to perform miracles like Jesus and further deceive people who think that the beast really is Jesus. You want to be afraid of something, be afraid of this, that there's a Jesus that people are going to go, oh, he's performing miracles and doing things. He's powerful. That must be the Messiah, not the Messiah. Uh, okay, uh, verse 14. And by the signs that that uh, beast gave, it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast. It deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lives. So this beast looks kind of like Jesus. He's able to perform miracles so people will be deceived. But the lamb, this, this lamb beast, will tell people to create an image for the first beast, an idol, something that the Bible strictly forbids. God says there's no other gods before the one true God. So we understand this second beast may look good, may look impressive, may look a little bit like Jesus, but it doesn't sound like Jesus. This beast serves itself, it doesn't serve other people. Jesus said, I came to to, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. The second beast is not talking like that. And here's how you know that the beast isn't, um, isn't Jesus. If you don't worship the image or the idol that has been created, you're killed. That is not the way God um, does things. And so uh, here's where we get into uh, the scary part for many people, the mark of the beast and the number um, 666. So here's what he says. Uh, This second beast causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Uh, 2020 didn't just bring the pandemic and the three blood moons that everybody freaked out about, but at the end of the year, I don't know if you heard this, the end of the year in some parts of the country in an attempt to avoid touching things because that's how we thought COVID was um, being spread. There were people who were having their um, ID and information implanted into their hand so that when they went to the store, they could scan their hand over the scanner and their information would be transferred. They could pay for things and, and that kind of stuff. Did you hear about that? Um, so guess what? People are freaking out. It's the mark of the beast. It's coming. I told you 2020. Um, let, let, I'm, I'm, let me just offend some people right now. Okay. Just be ready. Give me a little grace because, because Kevin gave me some pills. Um, the, here, here's the likelihood. Here's the likelihood, um, that the implants in the hand and the head and whatever are the, are the mark of the beast. Uh, when, when Trump uh, kicks Biden out of office and becomes president again before his term is ended, then the mark of the beast will come. Uh, that's a joke, people. Uh, what, what I'm telling you is it's not going to happen. Tr- Trump is not going to become the president in this term. Now, who knows what's going to happen in 2024? It's all up in the air. But, but people, you know, people were shouting, Trump's got it figured out, right? The ballots are bad, blah, 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 blah. It's going to happen. Trump's going to kick him out and he's going to take over and he's going to be the rightful. No, he's not. It's not going to happen. It didn't happen. It won't happen. And, uh, the implant in 2020 in the hand is not the mark of the beast. Now, I, I want to be really clear here because I get people every so often come up to you. Did you hear about the government is implanting this or doing this or tattooing that on the heads and hands of people? It's credit, whatever information, uh, or, um, you know, it's associated with, uh, whatever. So I want to be really clear, um, and, and careful about what I say next. That's why I put it in all caps. You will not discover the mark of the beast by watching the news. Even Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or whatever those other things are. You will not discover the mark of the beast by watching the news or reading the paper. And I don't know if anybody reads the paper anymore, but you're not going to find it there either. There's no secret code in the paper. And this one is really important for you people who are under the age of 60. 
Your alt-right Christian YouTuber or podcaster, whoever claims to know, is not where you're going to find the information about the mark of the beast. It's not going to happen. You're not going to find it by listening to news or watching the... I don't know. I don't care how Christian the person you're listening to claims to be. If they're taking things that are happening in the world and they're assigning them to revelation and saying, these are connected and this is what's going to happen. Jesus is coming back. Stop listening to them. Okay. The mark of the beast is not an implantable device in your hand or your forehead. It's not a barcode. It's not a tattoo. It's not anything that has to do with one world order or or currency or credit or any of that stuff. Let me tell you uh, what the mark of the beast is. The mark of the beast is the anti-Shema. And you're going to go, uh, what's that? I don't know what that is. What that is. Uh, the Shema was a Jewish prayer of allegiance to God. The Jewish people were to recite the Shema multiple times every day, uh, typically facing Jerusalem. They had it memorized. They memorized it from a very young age so that it could permeate every aspect of their lives um, so that they could live it out, live out what the Shema talks about. Here, O Israel, our Lord our God, the Lord is one. Worship the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and, and strength. Okay, that's part of the Shema. The people were to learn it so completely that it appeared to control their thoughts and their actions, their hands and their mind. In fact, in, in, in the Old Testament, it, it says uh, in Deuteronomy, I think it is, that the word of God, the Shema, is supposed to be so, you're supposed to know it so well that it's like having it put on your forehead or wrapped around your hand. And so the Jewish people, they would learn the Shema, and, and then, because they missed it too many times, they would write the Shema out, they would put it on little strips of paper, they would tuck it into little tiny boxes, and they would tape them or, or wrap them with a cord around their head and on their hand. That's not what God wanted them to do. He wanted them to live it out. Instead, they just wrote it down. And so later, what would happen is the scriptural writers would come along and they'd go, look, you make the tassels on your uh, clothes long and you make the phylacteries or the boxes on your head big so that people will look at you and go, oh, that must be a spiritual person. Look how big the box on their forehead is. Now, Today, I would go, look at that idiot over there with that great big box on his head. That's dumb. Why is he doing that? It doesn't make any sense. This is how we twist what God um, says. So uh, the mark of the beast simply means that those people who are deceived by the beast in opposition to God will live out his evilness. They will function in it as though it controls their thoughts and their, and their hands. Why, why would Satan want anything that would set his worshipers apart from anybody else by putting something on their head or their hand so that we could go, oh, <laughs> there's somebody who's following the beast. Don't go after them. That's ridiculous. But our faith is to be as important and fit through our lives so that it affects our thoughts and it affects the things that we do. Just like evil is to people that affects their thoughts, affects the things that they do in opposition to God. So it has nothing to do with credit, currency, one world order, the euro, or even China, or if you grew up in my generation, Russia. Doesn't have anything to do with any of that. Okay. John goes on to say that the number of this, of this beast is 666. Now this is not an evil number. In fact, it, appear, it appears in the Bible a few times. If 666 were such a horrible evil number that it represented evil itself, why would we find it in the Bible in other places that is not talking about evil? The sum of uh, uh, talents of gold that Solomon received was 666 talents of gold. And in one of the many genealogies in the Bible of the Israelites, uh, the people of the family of Adonikam numbered 666. 
And it has nothing to do, it says nothing about them being evil people or that gold was evil or anything like that. Remember, John is painting a picture like Picasso so the Romans would not understand what he's saying. And John, the writer of Revelation, spoke both Hebrew and Greek. In fact, people say he thought in Hebrew, but he spoke and he wrote in in Greek. Um, and, and so th- this is why uh, that's important. Look at Revelation 13, 18. John starts out, the, the 666, he starts it out this way. This calls for wisdom. What does that mean? Pay attention to what's coming because you're going to have to think about it a little bit. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding, wisdom, understand, the one who's paying attention, let them calculate the number of the beast. So he's trying to tell us who, who the beast is. For it is the number of a man. Okay, it's a it's a man. John's like, that's, it's a man. And his number is 666. John is prepping his readers for a riddle. Hey, listen, everybody, I'm going to tell you something, but I can't just tell you. So you got to have wisdom. You got to calculate the numbers. It's going to take a little bit for you to figure this out. It's the number of a man. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Greek and Hebrew alphabets unlike other alphabets around the world, corresponded to numbers, ones, tens, and one hundreds. So they break down that way. If a Greek person or a Hebrew person was looking at uh, their alphabet, they would also be looking at their number system. Now, there's a lot of people in the world today who are going to try and tell you, I, I remember when, again, this is just stupid. When Barack Obama became president, do you remember crazy like oh my goodness he's the antichrist his name is 666 if you figure out it's not it's not true what happens is people who are trying to confuse you and trying to get you to give them money and follow them and give them power and whatever else and control in their lives they will take our alphabet the english alphabet and they will number it one to 26 and then they'll go oh look the alphabet it, it equals 666 oh my goodness he's the beast uh, that is stupid uh, because our alphabet is not a number system. We have a completely different number system. It's not the same. But to John's readers who understood Hebrew and some Greek, they would have been able to look at this. And when you look at the name of Caesar, Nero Caesar, and the word beast in the original Hebrew language, guess what those letters slash numbers, because they're the same, guess what they equal? Six, six, six. John was not saying 666 is an evil number and you need to stay away from it. Don't ever put it on the door of anything. And if you move into a house that has five, six, 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 uh, it's possessed and you're going to be it's bad. Don't ever do it. Like, I know people who won't write a check out because the number 666 is in the check. Oh, rip that one up, throw it away. Don't, don't use that. That's not what John was saying. John was trying to help people understand a riddle that he was talking about Caesar and any person and any government who claimed to be a god and overstepped their bounds. Any king who thinks they're a god himself represents the beast or Satan. And so 666 is not an evil number. We should not be uh, afraid of it. It was simply a number used to hide who John was actually talking about. And the mark of the beast is not a number or a chip on your forehead. It's a metaphor for our thoughts and actions. Now, let me just tell you, I know we're getting down to the end here. Let me just tell you, I know that what I have just shared with you is completely opposite of probably everything that you have ever heard about Revelation, the mark of the beast, and the number 666. I also recognize that some people will probably call me the Antichrist, because I'm not afraid of it like uh, you're supposed to be. I want to tell you that I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor for 35 years. I grew up hearing about it. I grew up in this, and I had the same idea about Revelation that everybody else. I've been preaching for almost 25 years. Um, I have never preached through the book of Revelation in 25 years. Do you know why? Because it's difficult, and it's scary, and 
What do I do? And that's what I was told. That's what I was taught, that you're supposed to be a little bit afraid of revelation because it tells us things that we're not supposed to know and we're going to figure it out and everybody's got a different idea. And then I started reading it again and I started listening to some other people. By the way, I'm not the only one who thinks this. There are plenty of other people out there who uh, think this as well. And I started uh, looking at things and I started with this idea that Every other book of the Bible was written to a specific group of people at a specific time for a specific reason, and John must have written in the same way. And what people who are undergoing persecution need to know is that God loves them, and he's powerful, and he's going to take care of them no matter what happens, even if they die. And so I went into this going, John must have written this letter to encourage and give hope to these people who were dying for their faith. And if they couldn't understand it, it would not be encouraging or hope-filled. So there has to be another option. It can't be as crazy as everybody says it is. Um, and so I, I want you to know that I take it seriously. I understand the things that I'm telling you um, are, are things that maybe you haven't heard before, um, and that's okay. Uh, it's up to you now to decide which way you're going to be. Are you going to continue to be afraid of Revelation? Or, like me, are you now going to read Revelation and go, wow. That's awesome. That's really cool. I like that. I don't have to be afraid of this uh, anymore. Um, okay, uh, chapter 14. No, we're not going to look at the whole chapter. Okay, it's cool. Um, John lays out a clear distinction in um, chapter 14. Um, those who follow King Jesus will rule with him in victory. That's what he says in the beginning of 14. Because their thoughts and their actions will line up with their faith, with what Jesus has said. And, and so what this picture in the beginning of 14 is of celebration and singing and it's pure and it's beautiful. And it's completely opposite of everything he just wrote in 12 and 13. And it's represented by a harvest of grain. But there's another harvest in uh, chapter 14. It's a harvest of grapes that are going to be trampled. And those who reject Jesus' reign, they reject Jesus as king, and they follow Babylon or any nation that sets itself up in opposition to God, um, will, th- that person will suffer the same demise as that, uh, as that nation. And so in the Bible, when you read it, the wrath of God is not volatile, vengeful anger. Sometimes we read that term, the wrath of God, and we go, oh man, God's mad and he's getting them. He's going to send them to hell. It's not, it's not what it means. The wrath of God is a term for God's justice. And so what's happening is God is not waiting to throw people in hell. He, the Bible says he's patiently waiting in the hopes that they might turn and receive his son and become a part of the family. And so God doesn't send anybody to hell, but our own decisions and desires, the justice of God may put them there. You can resist the lure of Babylon headed toward a sure discussion, d- d- destruction, and you can follow the lamb. And that's difficult now, but it's going to be easy in heaven. Or you can refuse King Jesus and you can follow the beast, which is any government or person or idol that sets itself up in opposition to God. And you can suffer the same defeat as that thing or person or government. And that's easy now because it's going along with the world, but it's going to be difficult then. And and so um, John leaves his readers with a choice. This is Revelation 12 to 14. This is what it comes down to. Will you choose to embrace the world, thinking and acting, thinking and acting like an enemy of God? Or will you choose to surrender to King Jesus, thinking and acting like Jesus? And so John says all of this about the open scroll and he comes down to this choice and he says, whose side are you going to be on? Are you going to cave and follow Babylon, this nation that's opposed to God? Or are you going to stand in your faith and trust that even if you die, God can save you? Do you want to be known and live like the world, thinking and acting like an enemy of God? Or do you want to be known in association with the lamb, thinking and acting like Jesus? Are you after the world's treasures in the physical or are you after eternal treasures in the spiritual? 
This is the meaning of Revelation 12 to 14. And so we leave you with this. What is your choice? Let's stand up and um, we'll sing this last song together. Yeah.